0: Welcome to Agape Ministries Podcasts, a whole new way of thinking. Episode 79, Part 1 of Father Richard Rohr's talk on Spirituality for the Next generation.
1: Thank you Stephen. thank you Chris, and good morning. Mm -hmm. If you'll allow me, I'm gonna switch uh, the order of my two talks today, it seemed sequentially if I could talk to you this morning about the spirituality for the next generation and then in some ways describe that second stage spirituality if you will, uh, second half of life spirituality as some of us call it more this afternoon when I talk about the contemplative stance or how to live in the presence. This material has been judged by several of us to be um, crucial if we are going to move toward what Ron Rollheiser and I are both calling adult Christianity. And if there is a spirituality for the next generation, what it surely has to be is an adult Christianity. Uh, We've worked on this material, I think we have some of these conferences over at the table and we're calling it the first half and the second half of life. And I'm going to try this morning to just give you a very brief overview of what we mean by that and why it seems to clarify so many of the pastoral, practical and personal problems that many of us have with religion, with spirituality, with our own journey. Because we're convinced that much of the impasse that institutional religion seems to be at in so many parts of the world is that in many ways, brothers and sisters, it appears that we keep doing the task of the first half of life over and over and over and over again. And uh, when you've reached a certain point, it's not that you want to be elitist or arrogant or superior, but you're just rightfully, if you've matured, asking a different set of questions. Last year in Miami, I was able to address the International Convention of Spiritual Directors. And uh, they so understood this, like few other groups, because I think spiritual directors very often see that their task is precisely the building of the bridge from the first half of life spirituality to the second half. Now that'll hopefully make more sense by the end of this talk, hopefully. Pray that I can say it in some, with some kind of coherence. Now let me say, first of all, Now, for the sake of pedagogy or teaching, I, I might talk of first, first half of life and second half of life as if life were a straight line. You and I know it isn't. Huh? It's much more a spiral. And I've met 11-year-old kids with cancer in my country who are already in the second half of life, spiritually speaking. Uh, They're already asking much more mature questions. And I've met 70-year-old fools hmm, who don't know anything. And you wonder if if they've journeyed at all For some reason, they accepted that religion was simply a matter of glib certitudes and answers instead of, as the gospel promised us, dangerous and dark journeys. But if you're not willing or ready to take dangerous and dark journeys, frankly, you stay forever in the first half of life, even though it largely isn't working anymore or leading you to any deeper enlightenment or awareness or experience of the love of God. Now lest you think that um, this is somehow my idea or Ron Rollheiser's idea, let me give you at least a few scriptures to show that this in fact, in the scriptures, if we had uh, time to give you more, we'd give you also some of the mystics, Uh, but the language of two different essential stages is in fact very common and very consistent. Let me begin with Hebrews, the fifth chapter, verses 13 14. The author of Hebrews says, you need someone to sit down with you and go over the basics all over again, starting from square one, baby's milk. And this is his metaphor, milk and meat. You should have been on solid food, meat, long ago. Milk is for beginners who are still inexperienced in God's ways. Meat is for the mature who have achieved some practice in telling what's really right from what's really wrong. Another one, Galatians 3.24, Paul says, the law is no more than our babysitter. It's sometimes translated our nurse. Our nurse are our guardian the law is no more than our babysitter until the experience of the Christ comes and then we are justified by faith and of course that becomes much of his teaching explaining what this second stage justification by faith means in John's letters the metaphor is fear and love in love there can be no longer any fear Fear is driven out by perfect love. To fear is to still live in fear of punishment. And anyone who is still there is imperfect in the ways of love. C.G. Jung, if I can quote a psychologist, he says it very well. What is a normal goal to the young person becomes a neurotic hindrance by old age. We cannot live the afternoon of life according to the program of life's morning. For what was great in the morning will be of little importance by the evening. And what in the morning was true will at evening actually have become a lie. Now in short what we're all trying to say is the task of the first half of life is giving yourself identity, giving yourself boundaries, giving yourself a sense of specialness, significance. You you can't take that away from a young person. In fact, our task as elders is to help the young people on that journey. The issue is, is more to give myself an ego structure, whereas the task in the second half of life is letting go of the very thing you've created. You have to have an ego to let go of an ego, as the psychologist put it. That's why so many people do not proceed to the second half of life. Because frankly, it demands a major letting go. A major dying. A major surrendering of who we think we are. This lovely self-image that we've created for ourselves. And that always has to usually suffer some kind of destabilization. And that's God's work very often in the middle of life. I always say if you're on schedule, usually happens somewhere between 35 and 55, where this nice self-image you've manicured for yourself begins by God's grace to fall apart. In fact, if it doesn't, you probably won't know very much at all, if you keep trying to scramble back to my early superiority, my early righteousness, which is exactly what most people do. In effect, the task in the first half of life is developing, and you have to do it, a certain capacity for self-control. You have to learn how to say no to yourself, to internalize values. But the task in the second half of life is much more difficult than mere self-control. Self-control can actually give you a sense of heroism and strength and power and rightness. That's why religion can create righteous people if they just stay right there. They start feeling superior to others. But let me tell you as strongly as I can, the task in the second half of life is not self-control. The task in the second half of life is much more difficult. It's giving up control. And be honest, how many of you want to do that? Hardly anybody until it's forced upon you. We want to sort of manufacture our own holiness, we want to paint our own picture. As John's Gospel puts it so beautifully to Peter, and if you don't believe me up to now you all know this story. Jesus says it to Peter at the very end. Peter, when you were young, you dressed yourself. hmm? You put on your own clothes and you went where you wanted to go. hmm? You figured out your own identity and importance. But Peter, as you grow older, and it's almost the image of a little four-year-old when you have to dress them in their raincoat, they put out their arms and Mama puts their coat on them. Jesus says to Peter, when you're an old man, you'll put out your arms. Someone else will dress you and lead you where you would rather not go. There it is. There it is. (laughs) That's why we have so few people, even in religion, who go on to the second half of life. The concern in the first half of life is largely morality. Pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. Attempts at heroism, the issue in the second half of life is not morality, it's mysticism. And as I said at the very beginning, Christianity is much more a mystical matter than a moral matter. And that's why Paul, in his letters to the Romans and Galatians, makes such a tour de force on on the very function of law. He says, the most the law can do is give you information. It cannot give you transformation. And the law of itself cannot make you holy. It's amazing how little effect that whole book of Romans has had, certainly on Catholic moral theology. Because many of us grew up thinking that by obeying laws, we would come to love God. I want to tell you as strongly as I can that's not true. That's not true. that's not true you can obey commandments till the moment you die and not love God one ounce and you see in Philippians 3 when Paul finally faces this in himself he says up to now I was the best of Pharisees I knew the law better than anybody else I obeyed the law perfectly and what was once an asset to me has actually become a liability and the justification that I once sought from obedience to the law, I now seek only in surrender to Christ Jesus my Lord. It's a different set of rules. And yet you've got to do the first one right. That's the paradox. You can't do a nonstop flight to the second half of life. Do you know that? No such thing. You've got to pay your dues to the law to morality. you got to internalize the values. you got to have an ego to let go of an ego. you got to have an identity to move beyond this self-protection of your identity, which many people never move beyond. If you are led by the Spirit, Paul says in Galatians 5.18, I'd be afraid to say this, because I know some of you would write a letter to the bishop tomorrow, you know? But you just check out Galatians 5.18. When you are led by the Spirit, the law cannot touch you. Oh my God. Doesn't that sound dangerous to good Irish, English Catholics? It certainly does to me. Who gave us this impression? That first half of life morality would ever lead you to that great surrendering where you fall into the hands of the living God. In fact, in Romans 7, Paul says an even more contradictory, confusing thing. And check it out, don't believe me. He says the law was actually given to us to make you aware that you can't obey it to lead you to an experience of failure. So you know what religion does? It usually creates little laws that we can't obey. Hmm? I mean, like if I asked for a show of hands, who of you in this room this morning can truly say, I am a loving person? Well, (laughs) we're trying on our better days now and then, When God is in charge, he ekes a little love out of us. Who of you can say, I'm a patient person once in a while on my better days? (laughs) See, the real law, none of us can obey. You can never pat yourself on the back and saying, I have achieved it. So we usually whittle it down. And if you check it out, I don't mean to be too cynical, but they're usually body-based sins, Those you know, if you did it or you didn't, for some reason, you know. We like measurability, you know. We like to know if we're in or out, up or down, right or wrong. So, invariably, we'll choose something having to do with the body. And if you read Jesus, he hardly pays any attention to that. He's concerned about pride and injustice and righteousness and arrogance and the inability to love your enemy the inability to take care of the poor, there we all fail. So we don't want the real commandments that Jesus is concerned about. I, on Saturday afternoons when I'm home in the parish, I'm just the substitute priest because I'm gone so often, but I get to hear confessions. I'm in a huge Mexican-American parish. Sweet, good people. And, uh, you know, if any of you think hearing confessions is exciting... I want you to know it's extremely boring most of the time. (laughs) Maybe one out of 20 is sort of exciting. (laughs) Most of them, you just, it's hard not to fall asleep, you know. And uh, these good Mexican ladies, I mean, they come in. And nine out of ten, the only sin they've committed, they think, is they've missed Mass on Sunday, you know. Well, you know... Do you know what the word evil means? Evil? That's not even in the realm. Not even in the ballpark of what we mean by evil. We've trivialized evil down to something we can measure, we can control. You know if you went to Mass or you didn't go to Mass, you see? Hmm? And so you decide, okay, Father, I missed Mass three times. Of course you'd find out she was sick all three Sundays besides, but she's got to have something to say. And it's not even her fault. No one ever trained her in the great issues of justice and mercy and good faith, as Jesus puts it. Then sometimes I'll have these rather comfortable, seemingly well-bred businessman types come in. And they'll confess the same thing. You wonder if the issues of do they pay their employees a proper wage... (laughs) Uh, would ever come up, would ever enter their mind that that might be in the realm of evil. <laughs> but that we don't look at, paying our employees a just wage, for example. We'll just keep worrying about missing mass on Sunday. You know, <laughs> it, It's called smoke and mirrors. You, you get concerned over here with things Jesus never talked about once, huh? and you ignore the things he talked about all the time. That's what happens when you stay in the first half of life. Frankly, religion becomes infantile. And we never get to adult Christianity. We never get to an adult discernment of the nature of good and evil. And you can see why John's Gospel says, when the Spirit comes, the Spirit will show the world how wrong it was about sin, how wrong it was about judgment, how wrong it was about who was in the right. And who is in the wrong? It seems to me if the Christian churches do not begin to raise up people who can really tell good from evil, we will continue to be seduced and fooled by by phony wars as our country is. We will continue to be seduced and fooled by greedy, exploitative systems that we're all complicit in and cooperate with without an ounce of guilt. You can see why Jesus said, you strain out gnats and you swallow camels. What was he talking about? Was he just talking about Jews? No, brothers and sisters, Judaism is archetypal religion. And the reason Jesus' critique of Judaism is so strong is because the mistakes And the glories of Judaism are the mistakes and the glories of every religion. They did everything terribly right and they did everything wonderfully wrong. Just like Catholicism and just like our Protestant brothers and sisters, each group thinking it's reforming the other and it comes along and repeats the same woundedness, the same brokenness, the same blindness of the human ego because it always has to ask the same questions. I read a book just a year or so ago by E.F. Schumacher. You might have known his book uh, called uh, Small is Beautiful. It was almost the beginning of our awareness that we didn't have to have the biggest and the best of everything. Maybe we could live with smallness. It was a very Franciscan approach to things. But E.F. Schumacher wrote another book called Guide for the Perplexed and it's much less known. And he enumerates very clearly, and so I'm gonna partially read him, what I'm trying to say here. He says one's first task is to learn from society, from tradition and from the church, to find one's temporary reassurance and happiness in receiving direction from outside. It's the only way you can start. It's the only responsible way to start. That's why most cultures that were ever formed were traditional cultures. You build on your ancestors. Most healthy people I've ever met begin conservative, begin traditional. You're given law, identity, and and you start there. You don't necessarily continue there, but you have to start with an over-reliance upon outer authority. Then E.F. Schumacher describes the second stage. One second task is to interiorize the knowledge one has gained, sift it, sort it out, keeping the good, jettisoning the bad. This process might be called individuation, where now I learn rely upon inner authority. Now we see our young people there after their first year of college perhaps. You see more sophisticated, educated, liberal types probably go there far too quickly. They immediately identify with their inner authority. I know. I believe. I don't think, as I said, you can do a non-stop flight. You can't really begin liberal. You have to have boundaries before you let go of boundaries. You know, the Dalai Lama actually said it very well, if you don't mind me quoting the Dalai Lama. In fact, he said in one line what it takes poor Paul, an entire book of Romans, to say. He says, Learn the law very well so you'll know how to disobey it properly. (laughs) That's uh, that's the message of the book of Romans and Galatians. Don't call me a heretic. Call Paul a heretic. All right? <laughs> learn the law very well. So you learn what the law really means. And then you internalize the value. Again, I'm going to go higher than Paul. Let's try Jesus. Check out the Sermon on the Mount. There's a whole litany of phrases in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus himself, our Lord and teacher, says, The law says, I say. 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 What? After that kind of teaching gave us the impression that we would want to stay in the first column. (laughs) And that's exactly what's happened.
0: So thank you for taking the time to listen to these episodes. Our prayer is that as you listen and reflect on these teachings that you'll be encouraged to continue your journey to maximise your potential to have a good and a happy life. So sign in again next week for more teaching on how you can follow the Jesus way to experience your life as filled with meaning, purpose and joy so God bless and stay safe